Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Welcome to another episode of Tales to Terrify. Let's talk about a few things. First order of business, we here at Tales to Terrify aren't overly ambitious about scraping in as many awards for our humble podcasts as we can, but hey, we do like to receive them. The parsecs are now open for nominations, and we've had a pretty good year. I think that we might have a shot at it this year. The second thing that I'd like to draw your attention to is an absence. You know how every, oh, six months or so we'd really push for donations, and usually about once a year, our coffers went dry enough that the podcast went into the very possible chance that uh, we'd have to wrap this thing up. We're more stable, thanks to those of you who contribute on Patreon and the sponsors that have come our way through Acast. Now, I don't want to jinx ourselves here, because Acast doesn't promise us advertisers. At the end of every episode, I do give you all a bit of a nudge about contributing to Patreon, but that's been about it for quite some time. And I'd continue to do that, of course. I'd personally prefer us to be entirely listener-supported, but we'll work as we can. I think I mentioned that if Tales to Terrify listeners were to all chip in a dollar a month for the district's Patreon page, it'd fund all of Tony's dreams for all of the podcasts in the network immediately. But I'm not giving you the hard sell here. I'm leading up to something else. That's Reviews. Reviews on iTunes can help attract more attention to our podcast, and more listeners translate to more advertisers who might want to put a few dollars our way. So, if you don't have that dollar or two to send one over to our Patreon every month, I'll ask that you use a few minutes to put a few words on iTunes for us. Twitter or Facebook comments will be good too, and I'll try to make it a point to read a few of them from time to time on air. And just before we dive into our stories for the evening... Have you seen the trailer for It Comes at Night? That ticks so many of my boxes for a movie to look forward to. It looks nuts. 
If you haven't seen it yet, there's a link in the show notes. I'm really looking forward to seeing that one. The movie is also coming from A24, which has done so many terrific films, including Ex Machina, which is a personal favorite. Let's hear some stories. DJ Kozlowski writes speculative fiction and can be found on Daily Science Fiction, Everyday Fiction, and Speculit. His most recent short story, The Beach at the Seafoam Apartments, was published by Three Worlds Press. DJ lives in Connecticut with his wife and kids. He tries not to take life too seriously. Find him tweeting about all manner of things at Dave Kozlowski. The story you are about to hear from Mr. Kozlowski is about a few kids playing with a Ouija board. Growing up, our concerned Christian parents warned us that the very events of the story would happen if we messed around with Ouija boards. However, they never did for us, and that's not from a lack of trying. Listen with me to DJ Kozlowski's Spirit Board. It's not real. The Ouija board rested in the middle of them, six hands still resting on the planchette. It can't be real. There's no such thing as ghosts or spirits. The other two girls sat silently, staring at Kelly as she spoke. We're the ones controlling it. Like, we must be. I mean, it's our fingers on the thingy, and I admit... I've been pushing it a bit. Like when we asked the spirit who it likes, I sort of guided the thingy to B-L-A-I-N-E. Because I like Blaine. But you guys were pushing it too. Callie couldn't believe how naive these girls were. She lifted the board, forcing the girls' hands to fall to their laps. See? It's just wood. There's nothing special about it. Just wood with a sticker on the top. And the sticker has the letters and numbers in yes and no. But we are in control. I think usually nobody admits to controlling it. So it seems spooky. But look at this thing. She held up the planchette. It's plastic. Even the glass part is plastic. Light from the candles reflected on the planchette's faux glass dome, through which the letters on the board were typically viewed. The air smelled heavily of apple, as one of the candles was fat, red, and included apple oil. In the dimly lit apple-scented room, neither of the other girls spoke. They just sat there, frozen. The redhead had her mouth open slightly. Her freckles danced around her pale skin as the candles fluttered with Kelly's every movement. The other girl's short, dark hair framed her face, casting her features in shadow. Only the echo of light glinted from her eyes behind a few stray strands. Hey, listen, uh... She couldn't recall the dark-haired girl's name. Why couldn't she remember her name? How odd. Maybe she was suffering memory loss, some kind of temporary amnesia from the light-as-a-feather-stiff-as-a-board game, where her friends dropped her from waist-high onto the wooden floor. She remembered banging her head hard. The girls still stared at her. 
It was getting annoying. Did they really believe in this stupid game? She was getting agitated now. Kelly looked at the two, who were now holding hands. What the hell, you guys? You need to stop. You're creeping me out. Her mind wandered. Kelly had never believed in ghosts. She knew she was the one controlling the game. She made it go to the letters and numbers, yes and no, as appropriate. The other girls had to know she was doing it. They must have known all along. Why, why were they being so weird? Seriously, you know it was me, right? You guys had the thing moving slowly. Then I added my hands and it started moving with, like, a purpose. Like, it wasn't just going around. It was moving toward letters. When you ask the spirit's name, I'm the one who moved it to K-E-L. She stopped. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast. That was DJ Kozlowski's Spirit Board, as read by Josie Babin. Josie has a deep love for all things terror. That is why she chose an abandoned foreclosure as her first home purchase. When not hanging drywall or convincing herself that the noise she heard was just the house settling, she can be found in a lab convincing stem cells to cure diseases. 
In-between times are filled with playing outside in the San Diego sun and posing snuggles on her two cats and sometimes even her human companion. Narrating stories is a special treat that she enjoys immensely, and she hopes you enjoy listening to them. As always, Josie, thank you. Our second story of the night deals with something that might be close to home for anyone who has had an elderly parent or grandparent. Bonnie Jo Stufflebeam's fiction and poetry has appeared in over 50 magazines and anthologies, both literary and speculative, including The Toast, Clark's World, Prism International, Lightspeed, and Everyman's Library's Monsterverse. She recently released an audio fiction jazz collaborative album, Strange Monsters, with her partner, Peter Brewer, centered around the theme of women's voices. She's been reprinted in French and Polish for numerous podcasts and on the popular science blog, io9. She earned an MFA in creative writing from University of Southern Maine's Stone Coast program and created and curates the annual Art and Words Collaborative Show in Fort Worth, Texas. She is active on Twitter at Bonnie Jo Stuffle and on her website www.bonniejoestuffelbeam.com. Links will be in the show notes. The story you are about to hear originally was printed in Expanded Horizons in 2013, but has been reprinted in French for Tenebre in June of 2014 and in Haunting Muses, October of 2016. Lend me your ears, children of the night, for Bonnie Jo Stufflebeams. They come in through the walls. Claire's papa doesn't know her anymore. When they sit for dinner, he pushes his bowl of chili onto the floor. The bowl is plastic. After the first four times, she learned her lesson, but still it cracks as it hits the tile. The beans spread in a puddle beneath his feet. I won't eat your poison, he says. It's not poison, Papa. See? She eats a spoonful from her own bowl. Aren't you hungry? Not hungry enough. Papa crosses his arms, surveys the rest of the table. It's a long table with twelve chairs, and before each chair a place is set. The phantoms will arrive soon, and when they do, Claire hopes her father will eat. He always eats with the phantoms around. In the kitchen, the fluorescent light flickers. In the dining room, the flicker registers as a flash in the corner of Claire's eye. A minor annoyance, but enough to drive you mad night after night. She needs to fix the light, but has little time for household chores. Too much else to do. Clean and cook and try to convince Papa to take his pills. Claire goes into the kitchen to fill bowls for the phantoms. With the chessboard floor tiles below and the flashing light above, she feels like she's in a game. One of those video games, maybe. The kind that comes with a warning may cause seizures. She hurries, takes a bowl out for each place at the table, and sets it atop the placemat. She fills the water glasses with wine and the wine glasses with water. She pulls the bread from the oven and covers the basket with a cloth, places it in the middle of the table. The phantoms won't eat the bread, but they'll devour the butter, leaving greasy stains all over her mother's white tablecloth. Claire places another bowl of chili before Papa. He doesn't touch it. The phantoms come in through the walls, passing through the plaster and pink puffs of insulation, as Claire imagines ghosts would. 
They look like silhouettes of people Claire may have met before, vaguely familiar in the outlines of their bodies. They take their places at the table. As they pull the chairs out, wood scrapes wood. Already there are rivulets dug in the floor. Claire will have to replace the floor if she ever wants to sell the house after Papa goes. And the lights. Of course she'll have to fix those lights. The phantoms eat with their mouths open, gray light pouring from behind their teeth, surprisingly white in their shadow faces. If Claire were to touch the light, she imagines it would burn the skin. She never touches the phantoms. They speak in deep voices, shaky as old men, and they speak often, every night the same conversations. I was only twelve, and the man came to bring us our milk. He had a streak of black in his blonde hair, and I asked him what was the matter with his hair. He leered at me, always leering at me. I thought he was the devil, says one. Was he the devil? asks another. Of course he wasn't. What are you, crazy? It's hard for Claire to place the voices to the mouths, for they talk even when their mouths are full of food. Chili drips down their chins. Outside, the dogs bark at the door. The phantoms don't like dogs. They made that clear. What are those blasted noises? Papa asks. Can a man eat his dinner in peace? Claire fixes another bowl and places it outside for them. They're Claire's dogs. They were her girlfriends, before she left them, and everything but her books and a brief note. Another relic. Papa liked Claire's girlfriend more than he liked Claire. He used to call her Madeline, though her name was Anne. He liked her, he said, because she was funny. Claire has never been funny, and she suspects her father sees too much of him in her that it confuses him. Anne was a blank slate, but too blank, it turned out. She absorbed too much. She couldn't take it, watching someone go like Papa. Claire never thought she should have to. Now Claire lives alone with her father, and each night they dine with phantoms. Claire never asked them to be her guests. She isn't quite sure why they're there, in fact. She wants them to leave. Cooking for so many is expensive. It's hard enough when half of what her father eats ends up on the floor. The truth is that the phantoms comfort him. When they're there, he seems less confused, less angry. He eats his dinner to the last bite. He laughs and tells stories, makes it seem like the rest of the day was just a nightmare. Claire wants them to leave. She wants them to take her father with them. It's a horrible thought she has more and more these days. The first time the phantoms came for dinner, there were fewer of them. Four months ago, right before Anne left, that night the fridge had nearly been empty, and Claire, too tired after working her shift at the cemetery, she did ground maintenance there in that silent paradise, to go to the store. She cooked what she could, vermicelli spring rolls with peanut sauce, spaghetti with canned alfredo, onion rolls two days past their expiration date. She cooked a lot of food without thinking. Once she was in the hang of it, she didn't want to stop cooking. When she stopped, she would have to serve it. She would have to explain again to Papa that this was his home now. This was dinner. She cooked too much, so the phantoms came to eat it. Walking into the dining room with Papa's plate in her hand, she saw the first one. 
It was only a vague shape then, a shapeless body and head made of black mist like car exhaust. But the elbows that seemed to rest on the tabletop were of a thicker consistency, nearly solid. Claire could make out an indistinct hum, like the low static of a television left on. Then she noticed there were more of them, three seats full, and her father seemed to be listening to something they were saying that only he could hear. She did what she could. She brought them plates. After a couple of nights, their bodies began to turn as solid as their elbows, and Claire could hear their words like whispers, unintelligible but full of inflection, hidden meanings, she was sure. She tried harder. Every now and again she picked out a word. House. Third. Remember. Papa, it seemed, heard them as if they were part of him. Even when Claire heard nothing, he responded, and the phantoms bowed their heads and moved the holes that Claire came to call their mouths. They were rude guests. They slurped their soup. Bits of food flew from their forks across the table. Claire cleaned up when they left. The phantoms always left through the walls as well, but they never went through the kitchen. It's the lights, Papa said. You gotta fix those damn lights. Anne had always fixed the broken things. When the lights in Papa's room went out, Anne carried in the ladder from the garage and changed the bulbs. She changed the oil in Claire's car, bought a new hose for the washer. She knew how to do things like that. Claire had never been taught. She'd never been motivated to teach herself. I can't, Anne said the night before she left. If we can't fix this, who will? They were in bed together their clothes bunched at their feet, the blankets fallen to the floor. Their breath had steadied. The air in the room was stale in the absence of their sweat. That staleness had hung there, nameless for weeks. It was overdue that Anne should mention it. I know what you'll say when I go, that I couldn't handle this whole situation with your dad and all. But that's not it, Claire, and I think you know that. Right. Claire said, turning away. Sure I do. If you won't talk to me, if you won't try, how can I help you if you won't talk to me about it? Anne tried to touch her, but she shrugged Anne off. It was this way no matter what. Claire wanted so badly to talk, but she swallowed it. It had to wait until later, until later again, until later became months, and the words she'd swallowed hardened like lead in her belly. There was no bringing them up again. In the morning, Anne packed the few things she kept there and left while Claire pretended to sleep. Once Claire heard the click of the front door, she wrapped her arms around her knees and rocked in bed. The anger came later, though it was brief and soon replaced by the acquiescence of a caregiver, taking in events as they rushed forward to meet her, swallowing them, keeping them down with soda water and starch crackers, like the sick do. Who in the hell is this? Papa asked when he first met Anne. What in the hell does she want? This is Anne, Papa. She's my girlfriend, Claire said. Anne shook his limp hand. He had always said that women should not shake hands. She looks like a man, Papa said. Anne didn't look like a man. She had short hair, that was all. Cut to her ears, black. Her skin was dark, her eyes brown. She wore black pants and a button-up purple blouse with a collar. 
a gray pea coat. Claire always thought she looked like she stepped out from a painting faded with age. It fit because Anne was an artist of the digital era. She designed websites. It's nice to meet you, Mr. Pierce. Anne took her hand back but didn't look away from Papa. He was forced to smile. Are you here to bring me my lunch, Miss Madeline? He asked. I'll take a tuna sandwich on rye. In the kitchen, Claire apologized. Her father wasn't always mean, she said. It was the disease. It brought something out that Claire had never seen before, only heard in a rumor from her mother of her papa's temperament before she was born, a temperament that supposedly evaporated when he became a father. Claire's mother, before her death, always spoke of his transformation like it came from God. Claire didn't believe in God. Anne did. That was another reason Papa came to love her. What he didn't tell Claire about Anne was that she reminded him of his own wife, three years deceased. She had the same laugh, the same way of moving through the room as if she'd been there all along. He knew this about her when they first met, but as time dragged on, he lost the chance to say it. He lost the memory as he'd lost his wife. When she'd first gone, his wife, Claire's mother, Papa had not cried. Rather, he felt a strange constriction in his chest, a tightness that kept him from holding Claire close. So he stayed in his chair, looking out the window, a book in his hand so he could claim he was busy if anyone tried to talk. Visitors. They came in droves, left casseroles on the kitchen counter, if Claire was there to let them in, if not, they left the steaming dishes on the front steps for Claire to bring in the next time she came to visit. That was when the house had been his. It was not his any longer. He didn't know the pictures hung on the wall. He couldn't place the little striped bag in the bathroom or the light blue towel on the rack. The food in the fridge was foreign, exotic. All he wanted was a basket of fried pickles. But the woman in his house... She seemed so familiar, refused. Bad for your health, she said. Here, Papa, eat this. She called him that, and perhaps he was that to her, but she was not his daughter. He couldn't place her, but he knew this woman, so much older than the bits of Claire he could recall, did not belong to him. It came and went, then it went and never came back. One night, a phantom apologizes. I'm sorry. I should have been there better for you. I did wrong by you. Claire has served a new kind of soup, French onion, which she hopes Papa will appreciate more than chili. She doesn't look up at the phantom. He's sitting at the far end of the table and is easy to ignore. But his words confuse her. Sometimes they do that, confuse her. They speak like her papa. They relay pieces of him he seems to have lost. When she first noticed that they knew so much of the inside of his mind, she wished that they would give it all back. She's given up on hopes like that. Now the only wish is the one she's afraid and ashamed to admit. Take him. Take him, please. Take him with you. I should have told you it was going to be okay. 
All those words you probably needed to hear. I didn't give them to you, the phantom says. Claire looks up at Papa. His expression is blank as he spoons French onion soup into his mouth. He doesn't look at her, though she sees him see her from the corner of his eye. Should have let you know I still loved you. Even though you looked so much like her. Reminded me of her. Finally, Claire stands from the table, and without a word, she walks to her bedroom. She needs a moment to breathe. It would have been a welcome apology from her father's throat. From a ghost of a memory, she never wanted to hear anything so personal. The words creep through her skin. She shivers. On the edge of her bed, she tries not to start shaking, but she has to grab hold of the nightstand to steady her hands. There on the stand is one of the books Claire can never read again. Anne used to read it to her before bed. It's a book about the history of the movies, but it may as well have been a book of lullabies for how Anne's voice smoothed the words. Claire can't look at it. She ought to get rid of it, but she can't bear to touch it. In the DVD player, there's a movie Claire can't make herself remove. Alone in the bedroom, Claire hears voices from the dining room as clear as if they were there with her. They could be coming through the vents, but she doubts that's the case. She lies across the bed and unbuttons her shirt, wriggles out of her jeans. The cotton sheets against her skin are soothing. The air from the fan blows down on her, though never will either feel as soothing as Anne's hands or her mother's. Eventually, Claire will have to get up from the bed. She will have to go back into the dining room and clean up the mess. For now, she will let the room take care of him. She will let the phantoms comfort him. She closes her eyes and thinks about her mother, the way she flipped her hair back to clear it from her face, her white, white teeth, the rare smile, less rare when she and Claire were alone. Anne was something like her mother, but her smile was for everybody. It was what Claire liked most. Claire rolls over face down on the pillows. They smell like fresh laundry. Claire's breath catches. They will never smell like Anne again. She's washed it away. It's a step she hadn't thought she'd taken, and the pressure building in her chest tells her it's a step she wasn't ready for. How could she have done that without noticing? She curls against the pillows and makes herself cry. For Anne, for her mother, her papa, her everyone. Things Claire cannot touch for fear of losing them. One, the CD she made for Anne but never gave her. Two, the books, mostly on the bottom shelf, all gifts. Three, her mother's old silver-plated mirror and comb. Four, the pillowcases she won't wash again. Five, the recipes in the recipe box, written in her mother's hand, one in Anne's. Her father's scratchy instructions for a secret tortilla soup. Food she can no longer eat. Six. The dirty pair of underwear Anne forgot beneath the bed. Seven. The bandages Anne bought to bind the burn on Claire's hand from cooking. Eight. Her father's Christmas trinkets, still up from December and June. Nine. Her father's photo album, full of blank spaces. Ten, her father's hand.
Papa never was one for apologies, for feelings. None of them were. Here is Claire, the past, an open letter in her hand. She bounds into the kitchen where her mother stands at the stove. The smell of fish frying, the greasy scent of hot oil, catches Claire at the threshold. She pauses only a moment before she waves the letter through the air. I got in, she yells. Her mother turns, smiles, turns back to the stove. That's great, dear. As if her excitement were a balloon suddenly popped, the air wheezes away. Claire stands with a letter in her hand, unsure, tosses the letter on the table. Despite her initial excitement, after a semester, Claire drops out. Instead, she holds as many odd jobs as she can until she happens on the cemetery position. Claire's been there now for fifteen years. Without a home to call her own, the cemetery grounds become the place she most likes to be. There she can fix things. When the grass gets too long, she cuts it. When the flowers die, she replaces them. When she happens upon someone crying, she in no way feels obligated to comfort them. Her place is in the background of their lives. Safe. Being the center of Anne's life made her uncomfortable. Always she felt on edge. Her limbs rigid, her back tight. Anne tried to massage the knots away, but it didn't work, because when Anne's hands left her skin, the knots returned. She didn't know how to explain this, to tell Anne it wasn't her fault. Claire can't remember ever seeing her parents kiss. She can't remember them kissing her. Now, in her bedroom, she does not remember Anne's lips. It wasn't a surprise when the doctor called Claire and told her she would have to find care for her father. Her father had been forgetting. It started when her mother was sick and worsened after the funeral. Little things. When Claire would call, he would tell her the same story in the course of thirty minutes. He forgot where he put his wallet. Claire became the caretaker of his credit cards, as he could no longer keep track of the payments. He wrote bad checks. Then he forgot where he was. He asked for his mother long past. The first people he forgot were insignificant. Actors, politicians, cousins who never visited. Then it was the postman, his nephew. Finally, it was Claire, as the doctors had warned. Where's my little girl? He would ask, and she would explain. She would explain again. At first, it was temporary. It would eventually come back to him. Claire, he'd say, squeezing her hand. You're back. I sure do like it when you visit. Of course, Papa, Claire would say. Don't worry, I won't stop visiting you. The memory of her mother, on the other hand, was harder for him to lose. It seemed as if, though it too came and went, it was more often present. He remembered her, but her absence was something he couldn't explain to himself. He asked about her all the time back then. These days, he doesn't talk about her at all. Claire envies him his ignorance. Claire didn't move in right away. At first, she hired caregivers to stay with him 24-7. Then the money ran out. The savings dried up. The cards maxed out. Social Security and Medicaid paid for only half the care, and Claire didn't make enough to pay the rest. She broke the lease on her apartment and moved back in. Anne came along later at Claire's yard sale. She'd cleaned out Papa's old things, antiques he let rot in the garage, 
a bicycle missing its tire, the clothes he no longer wore. These days he mostly donned his favorite blue robe and plaid pajamas. Anne wasn't really interested in the merchandise, but she bought the bike so she could talk to Claire. She arranged to pick it up later when she wasn't on her way to the store. She lived in the neighborhood, she explained. Claire thought she talked too much, a trait she would learn to love. Now she misses the voice. Silence fills the empty air, except when the phantoms come and take it, and there is no comfort in their stolen words. The stories the phantoms tell are familiar to Claire. Every night at dinner she feels nostalgic with each mouthful of chili. And it isn't the food, though that too comes from a memory of limbo years with a crock pot and three cans of beans. She likes the nostalgia of taste buds. What falls from the phantoms' mouths, she likes much less. Papa told her some of the stories the phantoms have adopted, and her mother told her others. The rest are new to her, but they ring with her father's voice. She hates hearing her father's words from so many gray mouths. She hates not being able to look at him when she responds. He finds the phantoms entertaining. The stories are new to him. The evening of the apology. Once Claire returns to the dining room, she finds her father still there, his guests gone. It's time to go, he says. Okay, says Claire. She moves to help him, wraps her arm around his arm. Let's go to bed now, Papa. No. He jerks his arm away. She thinks she knows what's coming next. He will throw a fit, tell her to leave him alone, tell her to take him where he belongs. But he doesn't. Instead, he looks at the wall, the spot from which the phantoms leave. Claire looks there as well. One of the phantoms is still on this side of the wall. It extends a gray arm. Time to go. Her papa pats the table. Be right back, he says. Suddenly, Claire knows it's a lie. She can't explain how she knows it. Her father will go, and he won't come back. She leads her father to the hand. The shadow consumes him, his arm, his shoulder. It pulls his body forward, and together he and the phantom walk through the wall. Through the plaster, Claire hears her father's voice. Those damn lights! Hope she remembers. Once he's gone, Claire can't quite move. She stares at the spot where he stood. It was sudden, she thinks. More so than she thought it would be. She's not quite sure. She has to consider what has happened. If she's had time to build herself up to this. If she'll be able to get through this without anyone anymore to call hers. She wraps her arms around her chest. The room is cold. The dogs outside howl. She lets them in. There is some vague kind of comfort in their fur. They lick the smell of onion from her hand. Once they've settled down, she goes into the kitchen, pours the soup into a plastic container, slides the container into the fridge. She rinses the dishes and loads the washer, stands on the cabinet and tries to pull down the light cover. The side cracks in her hands, and a shard of glass crashes to the chessboard floor. Like a pawn, she thinks, too small to be significant. Back on the floor, she moves the glass from square to square. Crumbs dig into the palms of her hands. 
One square at a time, she slides the glass to the edge of the kitchen, then over into the dining room. She considers picking it up, throwing it away, but she doesn't. She crosses her legs where she is and waits to see if the light will stop flickering, if her father will after all come back. As for Anne, there's a phone and a number. Claire still remembers after all. The first order of business, Anne says once Claire lets her in, is that light. Claire has already thrown away the glass on the floor. She's already cooked a pan of tomatillo enchiladas for them to eat for dinner. The table she has set for two. Okay, Claire says. It's really all that need be said. That was Bonnie Jo Stufflebeam's They Come In Through the Walls, as read by Nicole Doolin. Nicole is a writer and voice actor. She performs for a number of popular and award-winning podcasts, such as the No Sleep podcast, Far-Fetched Fables, and right here at Tales to Terrify. To learn more about Nicole, visit her website at NicoleDoolin.com. Thank you, Nicole. It'll be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Two great stories read by two of my favorite narrators. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes or Acast or wherever you found our podcast. Our show was produced by our editor Scott Silk and associate editors Seth Williams and Drew Sebastini, and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.